it, it's a pleasure to have Kelly Kaplan here today. Um, she's the nutritional director. Is that your official title? Nutrition manager. It's director. a, yeah, yeah, titles are weird. At the Henry Dorley Zoo. And uh, I knew Kelly when she took my uh, class. Uh, do you remember what year that was? Oh, a while ago. Yeah, she was a natural resource major and took my nutrition class as an undergraduate and then went to Illinois and did her master's and now she's back in Nebraska and she's gonna tell us a little bit about what she does at the zoo. So thanks for coming, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so yeah, today I'm kind of just gonna give a brief overview of what nutrition programs in generals look like, a bit more specifically about what we do in Omaha and then sort of a very meandering, rambling uh, discussion of a variety of just weird things that come up on a day-to-day -day basis for us. Um, so, Nutrition in zoos. Uh, this has not historically been an area that has um, been given a lot of thought by zoos. This was a role that was traditionally filled um, either by veterinarians or even keepers and curatorial staff, not typically people with a lot of dedicated nutrition training. Um, and it's really just in the last few decades uh, that zoos have been placing an increasing <coughs> focus on having a dedicated nutrition department uh, to help with diets for the animals. Uh, even today, there are relatively few zoos that have nutrition programs. Uh, there are over 200 accredited zoos in the U.S., uh, and only about 25 of those have uh, dedicated nutrition programs with either uh, Ph.D. or master's nutritionists. Uh, and of those 25, only about three of them have actively managed labs. Uh, we are one of those. Uh, Disney and San Diego also do, and there are a few other other zoos that have some uh, some form of a lab, um, but really not a common thing. So we have a very unique program in Omaha. Uh, so since most zoos do not have dedicated nutrition programs, uh, how do they get information? Like their keepers and their curators can do some research. The veterinarians can help out, um, but there are also a variety of networks uh, among ACA zoos. Uh, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, uh, that help with the transfer of information. Uh, one of those things are called taxon advisory groups. Uh, so there are, say there's the Thelid tag, uh, that is a group of people that will advise any zoo that has any Thelid species. Um, so uh, those Thelid tags or the Canid tag or any of the, any of the taxon advisory groups would have veterinary advisors, they would have nutrition advisors, um, so that any zoo with questions about diets or illness, whatever, with those animals uh, can contact those people and ask questions. There are also, for certain species, um, things called species survival plans. Um, these are typically for endangered species that are more actively managed in zoos. Um, so, for example, I'm the nutrition advisor to the serval SSP. So any zoo that has a serval, has a diet question related to that animal, uh, they can contact me and I'll help them out, um, which is kind of funny because for a while Omaha didn't even have any servals. Um, we have one now, she's doing great. Uh, 
But yeah, so not all species are actively managed, but these are a few of the ways that we can share information with zoos who don't necessarily have their own uh, on-staff nutritionist. Some zoos also will hire a consulting nutritionist. Um, we also, um, there is a, a group called the Nutrition Advisory Group, or NAG, uh, for the ACA, uh, and we meet once every other year uh, to share information uh, with, with other students. So, uh, specifically at Omaha, like I said, we have a bit of a unique program here. We have three branches in our nutrition department. One is the animal commissary, where they actually have to prepare all the diets for all the animals every day. Uh, and we have six full-time staff there. Uh, we also have our browse department, uh, which um, if anyone's familiar uh, with the difference between browsing and grazing herbivores, browse would be more of the leafy tree material. Um, so we have uh, Ronnie Bieber is our browse coordinator. She is in charge of procuring as much as our elephants, giraffes, apes, all of the other hoofstock can eat. Uh, and then we have the nutrition lab, um, which is me and Devin, our currently part-time, but hopefully soon full-time lab technician. Uh, and then Dr. Cheryl Morris is the vice president of conservation <coughs> at the zoo, uh, but she also still spends a portion of her time directing the nutrition department. Um, so, like I said, those three branches, one, our diet kitchen, they're really involved in all of the logistical challenges in feeding have over uh, 6,000 animals, not including invertebrates and fish. Uh, so they have a lot to do every day uh, in terms of storage and distribution. Um, and in addition to those six full-time employees, we typically have anywhere between uh, zero and four interns at any given time. Um, definitely more in the summer. So if anyone is interested in internship opportunities during the school year, please let me know. Um, and then they also have a rotating cast of about 30 volunteers who work anywhere from like two hours a week to we have a couple volunteers that do like 30 hour weeks with us. Um, so between all of those people, that incredible team, uh, they push a lot of food out to the zoo. Uh, the browse program is relatively new. Uh, this really, the push for this happened when we got in six new African elephants uh, since they consume a lot of browse. Uh, and in the first couple years, we planted, I think, like 80 trees the first year and maybe a couple hundred the next year. And then we have since discovered the wonder of willow, uh, where you can just shove a stick in the ground and it will grow. And now we're planting more like 3,000 trees a year. Um, so that department uh, or that section of our department under Ronnie uh, has to plant a lot of trees, harvest trees. She's also working on outreach to the community, working with tree trimming companies. Uh, Omaha Public Power, uh, trying to get people who, instead of taking the trees that they have cut down to the landfill, they bring them to us and feed them to our animals. Um, so the nice thing about this is we are feeding our animals for reduced cost, but we're also diverting a lot of waste from the landfill. Um, so that's a big portion of that job. Um, I put in some of the numbers. I think we used something like 65 tons of browse material this summer alone uh, and probably about half of that was donated material and half of that is um, us actually going out to cut it. Uh, and then another really important uh, part of that is identifying uh, which of those browse species are toxic and which are non-toxic to be able to feed to our animals. Um, so there are certain things like red maple or oak, excuse 
excuse me, um, that are actually toxic, so we can't feed to our animals. Um, so it's really important that we are positively identifying every piece of browse that actually goes into the animal exhibits. Um, and because our browse department has been so successful uh, in providing large quantities of browse, we're actually able to start making it a regular part of our animals' diets. In the past, uh, browse has more been used as um, enrichment. So we have the typical diet that we feed to the animals every day, and then if we happen to have some browse, we throw that in there. They love it. Uh, it's a good portion of the diet. Um, it's um, enriching because they spend more of their time manipulating that feed, so they're having to strip leaves and peel bark um, rather than just shoveling in um, a feed concentrate or a pile of hay. Um, so this summer we were actually able to um, cut certain portions of animal diets and make browse um, an actual piece of that diet, which both saves us money, is better for the animals. Again, our browse program does a lot of really good work with that. So the nutrition laboratory, we do a few different things in there. Uh, one of those things, we do quality control analyses on some of the feeds that come in. Um, so we're running proximate analyses in how dry matter, organic matter, uh, crude fat, crude protein, gross energy, uh, and we are also set up to run total dietary fiber. Does anyone know the difference between different fiber methodologies? I'm assuming that quite a few of you do. So typically in animal feeds, we're either using crude fiber, uh, NDF, ADF, um, and in human nutrition is where total dietary fiber is usually used, um, but total dietary fiber gives us a much more complete picture of what fiber and what types of fiber are actually in the diet. Um, especially for uh, anything that has any soluble fibers in it. Um, so that is what we can run in-house. We do still send out um, to a, a lab in Omaha for NDF, ADF on a lot of our forages <coughs> because it's just not worth running TDFs on forages. Um, and then uh, any mineral or microbe analyses we also send out to another lab. Um, but then the other big part of what we do in the lab is diet formulation. Um, so running quality control, really important, but the bulk of what we do, I think, um, is just trying to manage diets for those 6,000 animals of more than 1,000 different species. Or five, I always forget the numbers. It's a lot. It's hard to keep track of all of them. Um, so really what we're doing is trying to pull information. What do we know about any of these species, um, and how do we apply it? Um, to the animals that we're working with right now. And there are a lot of different factors to consider. Um, and yeah, let's skip that because I don't want you guys. Um, so where do you guys think we should start? If we have a new animal that comes into the zoo, how do we decide what to feed it? Google. Google. <laughs> what is Google going to tell me about the animal? Like what specific information am I looking for? <clears throat> Similarities between species that we know something about? Sure. So, so we're looking for similarities in feeding habit or digestive tract morphology. Um, so what, what does their digestive system look like? Is there maybe a domestic model that we know a lot more about? Um, or what do we typically see it eating in the wild if someone has taken the time to observe that species in the wild and see what they're eating? Um, and then is there a similar species that we, that we know more about? So we want to look at their natural history, like what does their environment look like? What do we think they're eating in the wild? Um, but tip, sometimes that is an incomplete picture um, 
for example, we have typically thought of crocodilians uh, as being obligate carnivores, uh, but now it seems like more information is coming out that suggests that they actually have quite a significant portion of vegetative material uh, in their stomachs. So whether that is intentional or unintentional consumption, maybe that's something that we need to be looking at closer in our captive diets. Um, but I mean, 20 years ago, we were thinking of them as obligate carnivores because typically when you think of a crocodile, they eat meat in the wild. Um, so good to start with what we, what we know about them in the wild, but also uh, if we want to know more nutrient requirements, we want to look at a domestic model. Um, and that is entirely based on what is their digestive system look like. Um, so we want to know what it is, uh, what does the anatomy and physiology tell me, like maybe dental structure, GI tract, uh, what are their feeding strategies and behaviors in the wild, uh, if we know that. And then is there a model species with published requirements? Um, what does it eat in the wild? Um, but we don't always know. So uh, does anyone know what lemurs typically eat in Madagascar? <clears throat> They're primarily frugivores. So they eat almost entirely fruit in Madagascar. So does that mean that we should feed them fruit in zoos? Do we know what the nutrient composition of the fruits that they're eating in Madagascar is? Uh, and if we don't know that information, can we assume that the fruit that's available in the grocery store is the same as that? We probably can't. Um, luckily, at Omaha, our genetics department spends a lot of time in Madagascar, so they actually followed lemurs around and collected plant samples from all of the, the things that they were observed to be eating. Uh, and several years ago, this is before my time, uh, they analyzed all of those things for nutrient composition. They found there are, the fruits that they are eating would be totally unrecognizable to humans as fruit. Uh, they're very fibrous, they have thick waxy coatings, uh, they're higher in fiber, and they are very low in sugars compared to anything that we have in our grocery store. So if we look at nutrient composition of the fruits that they're eating in the wild and nutrient composition of our vegetables that are available to us in the grocery store, the vegetables are actually a lot closer to what they're eating than our fruits would be. So more and more zoos right now are pushing towards either fruit-free or low-fruit diets for primates uh, because those high sugar contents in diets can cause issues like obesity, diabetes, um, even some food aggression. Uh, so we really need to be aware of what those nutrients are. Now, sometimes that information isn't available, so we have to make some educated guesses. Uh, and then this kind of ties into that, what feed is available for us in this location? Like I cannot feed Malagasy fruits in Omaha. Um, I can't go and find some like tropical leaves to feed to some of our folivores. I have to work with what's available in the grocery store or what we can grow here in the Midwest. Um, and this is gonna vary. Like some zoos in California or Florida have access to more tropical fruits than we do. Um, so that has to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. So a lot of what we do um, is this swag, scientific wild-ass guessing. Uh, <laughs> we have to make a lot of educated guesses um, based on the information that we do have. Um, there's a lot of critical thinking and problem solving involved. So uh, no requirements. Um, you guys are familiar with the NRCs. Um, these are published nutrient requirements for a variety of primarily domestic species. Uh, AFCO, American Association of Feed Control Officials, also regulates the pet food industry um, and uh, has some recommendations 
for dogs and cats. And then AZA is working on putting out um, animal care manuals for a variety of species. Uh, these are still a work in progress, but basically um, for each species for which there is currently an animal care manual, uh, there are a lot of chapters involving husbandry, veterinary procedures, training, enrichment, uh, and there's a nutrition chapter in each of these animal care manuals. Um, so some of the, the nutritionists from the, the NAG, the Nutrition Advisory Group, uh, will work together to write those chapters, uh, and those are usually based pretty heavily on the NRCs, as well as any information that we actually have about the specifics of that species in captivity. So there are a variety of really unique challenges involved in feeding exotic species. We talked about the limited data on nutrients of wild ingredients um, and limited data on their actual requirements. Uh, we also are dealing with uh, management constraints. So some of our animals are group housed. Some of them are in mixed species exhibits. So I have to make sure that uh, the armadillo diet doesn't have anything in it that the owl monkey diet can't have because that owl monkey is going to go everywhere in that exhibit and there's no way that I can keep the food away from them. Now, on the other hand, if there's something the armadillo can't have, I can absolutely put that in the owl monkey's diet as long as the keepers put it up high so the armadillo can't get it. Um, so there are some weird things involved uh, in feeding. Uh, if I have, like, for example, that owl monkey is diabetic, so every other animal in that exhibit has to be on a low fruit or low sugar diet. Uh, we also have limited ingredients available regionally, so we've got to get a little creative with that. Uh, and then I can formulate the perfect diet, um, but unlike some formulated commercial feeds, uh, we try to feed a varied diet. So if I formulate the perfect diet, and then I find out a year later, the keepers say, oh, they never eat the lettuce. They're only eating the bananas, so. <laughs> That didn't work very well, um, so there's a lot of back and forth between me and the keepers, um, and we have to make sure that whatever that perfect diet is that we formulate, they're actually going to eat it. Uh, and then cost is ultimately a big consideration as well. Uh, we spend about a million dollars a year on food for the zoo, uh, which is a lot, but also we have a lot of species to feed. Um, so cost is ultimately a consideration. Um, we want to provide a varied diet that's going to meet all of the nutrient and behavioral needs of the animals, um, but we also need to stay within budget. Um, and that's the other thing I didn't really mention much earlier. Um, in addition to meeting nutrient requirements, we have to meet behavioral needs as well. So uh, there are nutritionally complete primate biscuits that I could feed um, as an exclusive feed source to say our gorillas. Uh, but then a gorilla would get maybe a volume about this big per day um, of feed. They would eat all of that within about a half an hour and then they would sit around bored and angry. Uh, we would probably have a lot more behavioral issues in group housed animals. Um, we would definitely have some more aggression towards keepers. We would have more issues with call stereotypic behaviors uh, or unhealthy repetitive uh, behaviors indicative of poor mental health. Uh, so instead, even though it is very much more expensive, uh, we feed huge volumes of leafy greens, which are not calorically dense. So they get like 40 pounds of leafy greens instead of like four pounds of biscuits. Um, so that gives them a lot more opportunities uh, to exhibit natural feeding behaviors. Um, foraging through their exhibit um, and spending more of their time uh, looking for and consuming food, which is more like what they would, their activity budget would look like 
in their natural environment. Again. There we go. All right, so what does a panda's digestive tract tell me it should eat? Does anyone know what a panda's digestive tract looks like? Or what are some of its closest living relatives? We all know what pandas actually eat, but is that what their digestive tracts are designed for? Uh, so this, if you look at the stomach and GI tract for this animal, it looks like a carnivore. Um, it's got a short, uh, not very complex, uh, large intestine, uh, simple stomach. So when all they eat is bamboo, how well do, do you think that's digested? It'd be like a human trying to eat only grass. This is panda poop. <laughs> it doesn't look like they got much out of it, right? Uh, pandas digest less than 20% of the dry matter content of bamboo. Uh, most of it just passes straight through undigested. Um, so what nutrients do you think they're actually absorbing from this? It's all of the cell contents, right? None of the cell walls. Um, they're getting uh, over 90% protein digestibility in this. There's not a whole lot of protein in bamboo, but they are very effective at extracting what there is. So they have to eat really large volumes, uh, and then their gut transit time is only around four hours, four to eight hours maybe. Um, so they're eating really large volumes, pushing it through really fast, extracting whatever um, simple carbohydrates and proteins they can get, and getting rid of all of the excess. So we talked about comparing things to domestic species where there are published nutrient requirements. Uh, so what do you think our top one should be? This one's pretty simple, right? It's a cat. And it's a cat. Uh, cats are fairly simple. They are obligate carnivores. They all have fairly similar diets and nutrient requirements. What about bears? Do we have a domestic omnivore model? Dog. Yeah, domestic dog. So that one makes sense. Uh, a lot of other canids as well. Um, what do you think? Uh, I'll just answer this one. So we have hindgut fermenters. We have a lot of hindgut fermenters in the zoo. Uh, there are a variety of these. Uh, tapers in the jungle. Zebras, that's kind of an easy one. Rhinos are also hindgut fermenters. Our elephants are hindgut fermenters. So we have a lot of different um, hindgut fermenters at the zoo. Um, but all of those still, we need to consider their natural history. So an African rhino that is primarily eating dry grasses uh, is going to have a very different diet than a Malayan tapir uh, who lives in the jungle and eats a lot of really um, <coughs> forages. Um, there are a variety of nutritional concerns for hindgut fermenters. These are the same for our animals as they would be for a horse. Um, so colic, mineral imbalances, uh, we see this pretty commonly in rhinos, especially black rhinos. Uh, they have iron storage disease um, because their typical diet, and actually this is an interesting one, so we don't really see this issue in white rhinos. White rhinos are grazers, black rhinos are browsers. Um, and I'll have a bit more of a discussion of the difference between those later. But the browse contains a lot of tannins, uh, which will bind to iron in the diet. So it makes sense that the animal whose natural diet would be high in tannins, high in fiber, uh, would have more of an issue with iron overload on a captive diet than a grazing animal. Grazers are far easier to feed in zoos than browsers are because dried grass hay is very readily available to us. Um, and then overfed carbohydrates can lead to things like Cushing's disease and uh, 
what about ruminants? We have a lot of ruminants as well. Uh, the gaur, the okapi, uh, the bongo, the giraffe, uh, and there are a huge variety of ruminant animals. Uh, so we also, uh, in addition to uh, the domestic cow, we have goats as another model or small ruminants. So, okay, all of these are canids. So in theory, we would compare all of them to the domestic dog, but what if we consider their diet in the wild? Are you guys familiar with any of these species? This first one is an African painted dog. Uh, the middle one is a Maine wolf, and then on the right, uh, we have the bat-eared fox. Uh, so the African hunting dog, or African painted dog, is a strict carnivore. It only eats meat. So really, we're looking at something closer to a cat than we are to a dog. Uh, the maned wolf consumes up to 70% vegetation in its diet. Um, so uh, if we tried feeding that a diet that would work for, say, the African hunting dog, uh, those animals have a lot of health issues in zoos, um, primarily because of that. And then battered foxes uh, eat basically exclusively insects. Uh, so the, the nutrient composition of typical insects is going to be different than that of carrion. So we're looking at probably a lower fat, higher protein diet for them. What about this one? What, what's a domestic model that we can use for raptors? What would be a domestic bird model? Chicken. The chicken. Should we feed a chicken and an eagle the same way? No. <laughs> so uh, then, well, let's look at feeding habit then. So this is an obligate carnivore. So what's our domestic carnivore? Cats. Cats. So the chicken cat, uh, we have to look a little bit differently um, at, at what, what nutrient requirements should we, we be looking to the chicken for and what should, what should we be looking to the cat for. Um, so there's some odd combinations that go on here. Uh, this is another really weird one. Uh, it's a primate, so we could feed it like a non-human primate, we could feed it kind of like a human, um, but it has a four-chambered stomach. So really, uh, if we feed a higher fruit diet to this primate, that could cause some serious problems. Um, we really need to feed it more like a cow than like a human. It's gonna have some higher protein requirements than. Um, than a cow, but uh, the fiber requirement is going to be much higher. Uh, we really need to monitor sugar and starch in this diet. Um, so you can't always tell just by looking at an animal uh, what you should be feeding them. Does anyone know what this animal is? Rock hyrax. It's the rock hyrax. Do you know its closest living relative? Elephant. The elephant. Yeah, this is such a weird one. Uh, this is one of my favorite trivia things. Um, but the rock hyrax, whose closest living relative is the elephant, uh, has a very strange digestive system. It has a three-chambered stomach and also enlarged cecum and large intestine for hindgut fermentation. Uh, so when Cheryl, Dr. Morris, first got to the zoo, uh, they were having some issues with their hyrax where they had a lot of diarrhea, they were losing weight, um, they could not get them to gain weight, but their favorite foods were bananas and grapes. They fed them more bananas and grapes and they just kept getting sicker. <laughs> they could not figure this out. Um, so Cheryl came in and she's like, well, uh, it's sort of a ruminant, it's sort of a hindgut fermenter. You absolutely should not be feeding grapes and bananas. Uh, let's switch up their diet and lo and behold, they got much healthier. So uh, we're gonna be looking at a combination of requirements for 
horse, rabbit, and small ruminants for this. Um, so kind of an interesting case. Uh, we have an incredible variety of ruminant animals. Some of them are tiny, tiny, like little one to five pound animals over here. Uh, and some of them are much larger, like say the giraffe or the gaur. Um, and there are a variety of different feeding strategies for these animals, everywhere from uh, completely concentrate selectors to um, completely uh, grazers or grass and roughage feeders. Uh, so we have a couple different models that we get to use here, and the goat is a pretty convenient model for browsers, uh, and the cow is a pretty convenient model for grazers. Um, and there are a variety of differences between those two animals. So browsers have an increased rate of fermentation, increased liver size to deal with some of those um, toxic compounds that are sometimes found in the browse, uh, increased salivary gland for buffering, uh, and then they eat more throughout the day. Um, and this is important because, again, most of what we have available to us in zoos is grass. Uh, so it could feed a lot more alfalfa, um, or we can try and feed as much browse as is available, uh, but we need to be aware of the differences in how these two um, feeding strategies are going to affect uh, the dietary needs for that. And we talked a little already um, about white versus black rhinos um, and how um, that probably is why we have much, uh, many more issues uh, with iron storage disease in black rhinos. Another really weird ruminant, uh, the yellow-backed diker. Uh, typically in the wild, it's going to eat a lot of seeds, fruits, like a lot of fruit, a huge portion of its diet. Um, and then small animals or carrion. Are ruminants supposed to eat meat? Typically no, and when the USDA inspects the zoo, absolutely no, our ruminants never have access to any meat products whatsoever. Um, definitely not. And even though our dikers are housed with meat-eating birds, um, they definitely would never eat that, right? That's what we tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, what nutrients are going to be different from a typical ruminant diet? So what do we need to be thinking about for the yellow-backed diker? They're going to have a higher proportion of highly fermentable carbohydrates in their diet than we would feed to, um, uh, say, like a sable antelope. Um, and maybe instead of dried grass haze, we're going to have more moist forages or chopped haze. Um, and they're definitely going to have a higher protein content in their diet. So again, this is just a lot of examples of why you can't ever look at just one thing. You can't look at just natural history. You can't look at just gut morphology. Um, and then moving on, uh, there are some other just oddball nutrients of concern um, in reptiles. Uh, there's a lot of concern about having access to basking lights uh, because some reptile species can synthesize their own vitamin D, some cannot, uh, some have to have it in the diet, some have to have access to a UV light, um, and there has historically been a lot of issues in reptiles with metabolic bone disease uh, because they either don't have one or the other of those things. Um, in insectivores, insectivores in the wild will eat like hundreds of species of bugs every day. Um, we don't have access to hundreds of species of bugs. We primarily have crickets and mealworms, uh, and crickets have a really wonky calcium phosphorus ratio. Um, 
So if we are not actively supplementing those diets, um, which we do both by gut-loading the crickets, so we feed the crickets a calcium-rich diet in the 24 hours before they are consumed um, so that their gut contents are high in calcium, and we also will dust crickets uh, with a calcium-rich mineral supplement um, in order to balance that ratio. So we try to feed as much variety as possible in zoos, um, but we are ultimately limited by things available to us. Um, so we have to make sure that any time uh, that's causing imbalances in the diet, we're correcting for it with supplementation. Uh, in nocturnal exhibits, um, so in our dome, the kingdom of the night in the basement, there is no natural light down there at all. Um, so all of those species um, are, are getting a vitamin D supplement since they have no UVA access. Uh, in piscivores that are eating uh, exclusively fish in their diet, uh, most fish, not all, uh, have an enzyme called thiaminase uh, that as soon as the fish dies, uh, starts uh, breaking down thiamine in that fish. Uh, vitamin E uh, also starts breaking down because um, as an antioxidant, the high uh, fat content in fish um, usually starts oxidizing and requires a higher vitamin E content. So uh, in piscivores, we are having to make sure that we are actively supplementing vitamin E and thiamine. And luckily, there are some really great companies that make supplements for zoos that have done a lot of research and do a lot of that thinking for you. Um, and so we have um, like a fish-eating mammal vitamin supplement that is a multivitamin, but definitely includes a lot of that. Um, and then in, in softball birds, we already talked about um, Indian and black rhinos with iron, but softball birds also, uh, they primarily will eat fruits. Uh, in the wild and if they are on a pelleted diet in captivity that has too much iron, they, like, um, like the rhinos, can also have um, iron over overload issues. Um, so we're having to make sure that we are um, feeding specific diets for soft-billed birds, not for insectivores or other things. So we talked about in the nutrition lab, we do our quality control analyses, we do a lot of diet formulation, and I give you a lot of different examples of that. Um, we also try to contribute to the body of research that helps us better understand the specific nutrient requirements of these exotic species. Um, so some of the uh, projects that we've worked on recently, we've done quite a few things looking at uh, diet effects on behavior. Uh, in our great apes, we have one gorilla and one orangutan that exhibit uh, regurgitation and re-ingestion behavior, um, or they will just sit in the corner and they will vomit just, it's really, really gross, uh, especially doing observations on that to count like how many times they're doing it and how much time they're doing it. Uh, and the orangutan is especially a jerk, and if you're not behind glass, she'll spit a little bit at you. Um, so we want to look at, some zoos said, okay, we started feeding a biscuit-free diet, biscuit-free diet, or we started feeding a low-starch diet, or we started feeding a fruit-free diet, and that totally eliminated the behavior. You never have to worry about it again. You say, okay, great. Do you have any information about rates before and rates after? And they said, no, no, our keepers just know. They know that it helped. <laughs> uh, so we said, okay, we're going to try it, um, but we're going to actually monitor how much time are we spending on this behavior before and after. Um, and we switched to a low starch, low fruit, biscuit free diet for our gorillas, uh, and the incidence of the behavior tripled. 
Um, so <laughs> that may or may not have been tied to like a volume issue. We thought we did an isocaloric uh, switch, but maybe we just had not gotten the volume increased enough. Um, so we, we did increase the volume again later. Uh, the behavior was definitely still happening. Um, and so what happened two summers ago, another zoo had said, oh, if you keep browse every day, it totally eliminates the behavior, never have to worry about it again. Do you have any information? No, okay, we'll try it anyway. Uh, so we started feeding browse every day uh, and monitored, and it seems to have a beneficial effect for our gorilla, but really had no effect for the orangutan. Um, and so this past summer, we did that again, uh, just to make sure that it wasn't a fluke the first time. Uh, and we also looked at uh, what the amount of browse, if there's an effect of the amount of browse offered. So we had like a low browse and a high browse, and then uh, we took out a bunch of greens in the diet and replaced that with browse to see is it like just increasing the volume of the diet? Is there something specific about browse? Um, and I have not had time to look at those numbers yet. But anecdotally, I can tell you uh, that it again seems to have a beneficial effect for the gorilla, and again seems to have basically no effect for the orangutan. Um, but I cannot tell you that numerically yet. Um, so that's one of the, the big examples where diet can have a huge effect on, on behavior. Uh, we also had a grad student in the lab uh, looking at the effect that vitamin E in the diet would have on cognitive function. Um, she was using rats as a model species, uh, looking at performance in a maze. Uh, she would have to present those results for you. Uh, and then we also have looked at the effect of offering a novel food item on activity levels. Um, so we got some donated pig skulls. And we put them in with some of our big cats uh, and we monitored activity levels before, while they had access to the pig head and then like a week later. Uh, and interestingly, uh, activity levels were increased when they had access to the novel item and also afterwards. So that, that increase in activity was sustained. Uh, we've also looked at, or are starting to look at the effect that uh, a hyperphagic diet would have on our sloth bear behavior. Um, so we have a male sloth bear and a female sloth bear, and we cannot put them together right now because the male sloth bear is kind of a jerk. Um, so one of the suggestions that was put forth is uh, they are not, uh, they don't have seasonal diets in the wild, like black bears have a very seasonal diet. They um, exhibit hyperphagia in the fall, they put on a lot of weight, uh, and then they crash diet because they hibernate. Sloth bears don't do this, but maybe uh, because they're not used to the cold, uh, they are still trying to pack on some pounds before we go into winter. Uh, so if we increase their diet and allow them uh, to put on a lot of weight going into winter, Will that have an effect on the incidence of aggressive or stereotypic behaviors in that animal? And that is ongoing, so I also can't tell you what the results of that are. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's good to actually monitor these things because, again, some other zoos have tried this and they've said, yeah, it worked, but also we still don't house our sloth bears together anymore because they don't get along. Um, so it's hard to tell um, if if that does work, great, um, and we have established that it does, but if it doesn't, we need to know that we need to work on trying something else. Uh, some other recent projects, we had a high school student actually uh, kind of coordinating efforts looking at um, how to supplement vitamin D in green sea turtles. Um, so uh, our vets had been taking regular blood draws on these animals because they had established um, a serum vitamin D level of zero, <laughs> which was a concern. 
Um, so we started an oral supplement. Uh, it did seem to increase that a little bit. Uh, and then the Zoo Academy, um, the, we have a high school program at the zoo. Uh, her project was looking at um, whether access to a UV light would also increase that above and beyond what the oral supplement was able to do. Uh, we also do a lot of palatability studies because as I said, we can formulate the perfect diet, but if the animals won't eat it, it's not worth it. Um, one of the things with our browse program, since we live in Nebraska and we do not have regular access to browse in the winter, um, we're working on preservation methods. Um, so we can freeze some, but we are limited by our freezer space. Um, so we're working a lot on browse silage, um, which is interesting and challenging and very time consuming. Uh, so we want to make sure that before we dedicate a lot of time and resources to that, that the animals are actually going to eat it. Um, so that's where palatability studies come in, um, just literally comparing, will they, won't they, or do they eat that better or worse than the frozen browse? Um, another project, oops, ooh, that's fun. Um, there we go. Uh, so another thing that we've been working on, uh, one of our Zoo Academy students last year uh, had the pleasure of sorting through all of the rabbit remains after cheetahs had eaten them. <laughs> Uh, so we want to feed more whole prey to our animals uh, because uh, there is a formulated ground meat product that will meet all of their nutrient requirements. But as we mentioned, behavioral needs are different. Uh, so we want to feed more whole prey so that the animals are spending more time um, exhibiting those natural feeding behaviors, manipulating their food, tearing at it. There's also some thought that the non-digestible portions of whole prey, um, we're calling animal fiber, um, it is not chemically a fiber, but um, the non-digestible portions behave sort of like fiber in a carnivore's digestive tract. There's a little bit of fermentation that happens. Um, so we want to feed more of that, but it is not a homogenous feed source. So if we say the nutrient content of a whole rabbit carcass is this, so we've fed that to the cheetah and that's what they're getting, that may not actually be accurate because they're not necessarily eating the whole thing. So uh, this person got to sift through those remains, uh, blenderize a lot of bunnies. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to get a better handle on what is the actual nutrient intake from whole prey? What portions are they eating? What portions are they not eating? What is the nutrient intake from what they're actually eating? Uh, and then this year we have some other students who are expanding that to looking at different prey sources and different predators. Uh, to, to sort of narrow that down a bit more too. Uh, another thing that our, our grad student had worked on in the past couple of years is looking at um, the diet effect on biomarkers of oxidative stress. Um, so she was looking at um, well, in a variety of species that vitamin E with rats was part of it. Um, she was also looking at oxidative stress and how that was tied to cognitive function. Uh, there was also a joint project that we did with our reproductive physiology department. Uh, looking at uh, how fatty acids and minerals in the diet uh, might affect biomarkers of oxidative stress, as well as sperm morphology. Um, in like snow leopards, we are struggling to get them to reproduce in captivity. So is there an effect that the diet is having on that? Um, and then some upcoming projects, we're gonna be looking at alternate fiber sources, whether more insoluble or soluble or blended fibers um, are better in certain species of cats. Um, there's a really interesting project. Um, small clawed otters in zoos are prone to developing calcium oxalate stones. Um, no one can really pin down why. We can't really pin down if that's common in wild animals as well or if that's here. Um, so we were going to be trying to measure um, 
Oxalobacter, or the bacteria that digests those oxalate stones, um, in the feces of small cloud otters, and um, if it's present, if it's not, if there's maybe a way to um, add it as a probiotic. Um, but that's been kind of on the docket for several years, and we just haven't quite gotten it done. Uh, and then we've, we've recently noticed that it seems like some of our raw meat diets uh, may be deficient in vitamin A. Um, we've seen a couple clinical cases in uh, zoos across the country, but not a lot. Uh, so we want to look at how um, storage or freezing or freeze thaw cycles might affect the vitamin A content in that um, and see if um, we are indeed seeing deficiencies in the meat uh, in all zoos, if it's just how some zoos are storing things, um, or maybe it's just lab error. We've gotten some really inconsistent results from certain labs um, where one lab will test high, one lab will test low. Um, yeah, and then we have so many different species and so many different potential projects. Anyone who's interested in anything, I'm certain, could find a project that interested them at the zoo. So that was my long and rambling summary. Does anyone have any questions? I have a couple questions. Sure. When you run these trials and do this work, um, are there avenues for you to publish the results, present them? Tell us a little bit about the professional side of that. Yeah, okay. uh, so there are uh, some conferences that are specific to zoos. Um, you could also go to the Animal Sciences Conference to present um, results of research. Uh, there, we, I mean, we publish in journals just like anyone else. Um, so there, yeah, there are a lot of different avenues for that. The NAG, like I said, has a conference every other year um, where you can present research. Uh, the Comparative Nutrition Society is in the off years of NAG. Um, so those are primarily the things that I go to, um, but there are also AZA conferences. Um, and since we deal with so many different species, like any of the domestic uh, research that's happening in domestic or even human species, notice there's a lot of students here. Can you talk a little bit about how you set up research programs with university staff and students? Sure. Uh, so we, we accept a lot of interns uh, in the nutrition department and really all across the zoo. Um, reproductive physiology and genetics also take some interns um, as well as all of the animal departments. Um, I think even our education department has internships. Uh, so an internship is a good place to start. Uh, we've also done some collaborative research projects, um, and that really just involves like reaching out, um, saying what you're interested in. Uh, depending on the project, a lot of what we do um, is uh, research that does not manipulate or change the diet in any way. Uh, if there is going to be manipulation of the diet or the conditions for the animal, or if we need to take, say, blood, blood samples, um, we have an IACUC board that approves any research that happens. So there's some oversight from both veterinarians and people in the community. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely, we can walk people through the, the IDA process. Yeah. What does the SSP coordinator role entail? Uh, how are you elected? Or like, Sure. Uh, so for me, it was saying, hey, there's not currently a nutrition advisor for the serval SSP. Hey, Meg, I would like to be the nutrition advisor for the serval SSP. Here are my qualifications. This is why I can do this. And they said, okay, great. 
Um, and then the, the field tag put out a statement to, to everyone that said, hey, we actually have a nutrition advisor now. Ask her if you have questions. Uh, and there were a whole bunch of questions up front and then like none since then. So honestly, it involves for that particular thing uh, relatively little for me. Now, nutrition advisors to the tags, that's a lot more involved role. Um, certain SSPs, I think, are more active than others. Um, so it, it varies a lot. Um, some of the tag nutrition advisors would be involved in helping publish the nutrition chapters for those animal care manuals. Yeah. So I suspect that AZA is very important in communicating the knowledge that's out there to other member zoos. But what about the other way, communicating needs or oh, questions? That's a great question. Uh, I think a lot of that, um, you mean like needs of individual zoos, like we need information about the species. Sure. Um, all of the, the contact information for the advisors for the, the TAG, AZA, SSPs are published in a place where zoos have access to it. So like my email address is public. Um, so anyone can find that information and reach out to me and ask questions. Um, so I think there's a fair amount of back and forth. Um, it's just um, kind of incumbent on those individual zoos to reach out in that communication. There are also some listservs um, for keepers, for curators, for directors, for research, uh, for veterinarians. So um, information is definitely distributed that way as well. Other questions for Joey? Yeah. You talked a lot about comparative anatomy, but what about comparative physiology? For example, if you looked at the pancreas of an animal and it was devoid of lapase, for example, then you would know that it's probably not going to tolerate. Sure. Um, I think there's probably been less research done in that, um, especially like we, we can't, very hard to take with tissue samples. Um, so if you wanted um, a biopsy of a liver or pancreas, um, uh, we are very hesitant to sedate any of our animals um, unless it's absolutely necessary because there's a lot of risk involved with that. I mean, even in humans, and we've been doing it in humans for a really long time, uh, in some of these exotic species, um, dosing is really challenging. And some of you may have heard we actually lost one of our African elephants uh, because of that. He was sedated one month, everything went fine. He was sedated two months later and didn't wake up. So, um, Anything that would require sedation is, is probably research that's just not going to happen. So some of what we do is really opportunistic. Uh, if an animal has to be euthanized um, for any reason, uh, we can collect a lot of tissue samples then. Um, but uh, controlled research is very hard in heat. Um, yeah, just sample size is not great. Yeah. Do you ever get to travel to like the exotic places where the animals were originally from or I don't um, I think if I came up with a project that would take me there and found a grant that would pay for it I could um, but most of my time is spent with like the day-to-day -day managing the diets for the animals and I don't honestly have a whole lot of extra time to do something like that and because our staff is so small uh, if I were to just take off for several months uh, that would 
that would be a struggle for everyone. Um, but I know that there are there are definitely places that do that. Um, there are some nutrition researchers in the field. Um, so it's just a question of funding and time. Other questions? If not, let's thank Kelly.